Hello, everyone. Welcome to our next podcast episode, VIP Vanguard Indo-Pacific at the Consortium of Indo-Pacific Researchers. And today I'm joined with my uh, fellow member, Arushish Singh. And uh, today we have we are honored to have an exemplary and uh, expert and speaker, Professor Ivan Alice. Uh, let me introduce him briefly here and uh, for our today's discussion that is focused on China and Latin America and what's the implication for the United States in the region. So our topic is cost and benefit and analysis of China's investment in Latin America. We welcome you, Professor Alice here. Professor Ivan Alice is a research Professor of Latin American Studies at the U.S. Army War College Strategic Study Institute with a focus on the region's relationship with China and other non-Western hemisphere actors, as well as transnational organized crime and population, populism in the region. Dr. Alice has published over 400 books, including five books, uh, the 2009 book, China in Latin America, The What's and Wherefores, the 2013 book, The Statistic Dimension of Chinese Engagement with Latin America. The 2014 book, China on the Ground in Latin America. The 2018 book, Transnational Organized Crime in Latin America and the Caribbean. And he published the recent uh, book on China's engagement in Latin America, distorting development and democracy. Professor Alice previously served as on Secretary of State Policy Planning with the responsibility of Latin America and the Caribbean, as well as the international narcotics and law enforcement issues. Professor Alice has also been awarded the Order of Military by the Colombian government for his scholarship on security issues in the region. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Alice. Uh, I would like to start with the trending question that is more a kind of important with the, and uh, recently um, Secretary Blinken visited China. He raised the issue with the, uh, the president and other Chinese authorities there. It's the fentanyl uh, issues like the, how much is the, is badly impacted the United States as, uh, as the report says that, uh, uh, with the age group of 15 to 49 age group youths are badly impacted of this uh, synthetic opioid. And the primary sources of this is China that is trafficking towards Mexico and coming to the United States border. So just, I want to ask, uh, just I'm curious that how much important this concern is and rather than the geopolitics issue that we are facing in the great power politics in the Indo-Pacific or the Taiwan Strait. So, how much is concerning and what's your take here? Well, I appreciate the question, Indu, and it's a pleasure to be on the podcast uh, with, with you and, and, and your colleagues. Uh, so first of all, this is an example of how uh, so many issues uh, with our global interconnectivity are both uh, domestic issues of domestic importance as well as international issues. And we certainly see that with immigration as well, and we certainly see that with drugs. Uh, in terms of the overall impact, especially with synthetic drugs, um, but especially with fentanyl, I believe last year, uh, something like 109 thousand people uh, were uh, died in the United States of overdoses, and about 70% of those were overdoses of fentanyl, just because of the, the potency. It's so very easy for, uh, you know, impure or, or um, you know, 
uh, otherwise you know badly prepared uh, illicit drugs to, uh, to to kill through overdoses. Um, the fentanyl issue and the drug issue in general, especially coming out of places like like Wuhan, has been on the table with China for several different years. Um, I remember it was a point of discussion when again I was on Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's policy planning staff during the previous administration uh, and uh, had the privilege of, of working with our State Department uh, organization for uh, for international narcotics and law enforcement. Um, and I will say that my experience is that the Chinese um, do work with us to some degree. They have a shared interest in controlling uh, drug flows, uh, both in China and in other places. It impacts their reputation as, as well as impacting China domestically. Um, however, um, you know, I can't say that that uh, trans that cooperation has always been very e extensive. Sometimes it, it's reluctant, and especially uh, the Chinese don't like to admit when they have uh, you know, difficulties. Frankly, it's also a very difficult issue for them to control, since there are literally thousands of you know, different uh, uh, chemical producers within China, and and also uh, many different uh, basically uh, chemical receipts for things other than the ones that are explicitly controlled. And so it is a difficult problem, and yet at the same time when you you look at uh, China's ability to, for example, uh, you know, impose uh, internet controls on you know 1.4 million Chinese. Um, you know, it's saying it's a difficult problem doesn't mean that that they can't do it. Uh, my experience has been that uh, yes, um, when uh, we apply enough pressure, uh, they will do some cooperation. Indeed, uh, in in part, uh, getting uh, the fentanyl uh, away from direct mailing uh, from Wuhan uh, to the United States uh, was was one of the accomplishments. However. However, uh, a lot of the fentanyl then began uh, going to Mexico even more than previously. Uh, and some of the uh, cartels in Mexico, especially the ones who have long time had Asia ties, uh, especially Sinaloa and Jalisco Nueva Generacion, began using those ties to, to essentially bring the precursor chemicals in and set up fentanyl and, and other uh, synthetic pill presses in Mexico and then bring it into the United States you know, that way. So um, it did make sense that this uh, was an issue because of the number of Americans who have been killed in the other countries it, it touches on. Um, and uh, we are getting some cooperation, I think. And, and frankly, uh, with the many different issues that have created tensions between the US and China, this is probably one where we could have some type of constructive engagement. So I suspect that's one of the reasons why it was on Secretary Blinken's uh, agenda there in, in, in Beijing. Okay, uh, thank you so much, uh, Professor Alice. Like, uh, we just just I'm take a, a a short question from whatever you uh, uh, said here. So recently, Justice Department announced charges against China-based chemical manufacturing companies. So how do you see that this pressure or this these charges will hamper the step uh, the effort that uh, uh, United States is doing, like uh, in the visit of the uh, Secretary Blinken? in stabilizing the relation with uh, US-China. Well, I think the, the most important thing is that that does show that our Department of Justice does have concrete information that is actionable in U.S. courts about specific, uh, you know, Chinese uh, fentanyl producers. And so it's not just politics. Now, although it's not entirely clear the role of, of China, whether they cooperated or not, um, you know, certainly this was an arrest on, on U.S. soil and not an arrest in, in China. Um, and at least uh, from what I've seen, there was not uh, public evidence that the Chinese were helping us in getting that evidence that they needed on, on Chinese companies. And so there's probably a lot more that, that needs to be done. But if nothing else, 
and frankly, this will, um, you know, again, probably be a drop in the bucket in terms of the large number of, of different uh, chemical suppliers uh, in, in China. But at the end of the day, the, the most important thing for me is I think it provides concrete evidence that there is legally um, actionable evidence that these, um, you know, that this fentanyl is being produced in China and it's being brought over into the United States through these, uh, you know, Chinese business intermediaries. Yeah, thank you. Anushi, please go ahead with your question. Uh, thank you, ma'am. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for that illuminating answer, uh, Dr. Ennis. Uh, we are delighted to have uh, you today with us. So, a lot of contemporary literature has been saying China's engagement uh, with the variety, you know, of the diverse countries of Latin America. But this relationship has primarily been driven by economic and security interests. However, this unique partnership and you know these linkages, they are encountering fresh, uh, fresh difficulties that as the struggling uh, region grapples with increasingly severe economic and public health crisis. So um, my question is, so uh, we have to understand these issues better. Uh, to do that, we also have to understand the evolution of the relationship. So how has Chinese presence in Latin America evolved since the turn of the century? And what are the main regions or areas of bilateral cooperation between Beijing and the regional countries? No, that's a, that's a great question. So first of all, you're right. Um, the relationship has evolved in many ways. And for me, although it, it's primarily about China pursuing its own economic interests and the, the benefit of that interest going to China, um, there still is a political component, a security component, and, and other components that I would say are becoming more important over, over time. So first of all, the, the evolution, um, you know, although uh, with uh, China's global opening to the world that started with uh, Deng Xiaoping, uh, you saw an exponential increase in and trade, uh, usually buying commodities and, and selling its manufactured goods to all parts of the world, including Latin America. Um, it really began to take off in, in trade terms uh, when China was admitted to the World Trade Organization in 2001, I think formalized in 2002. Um, however, even as that grew, what was going on behind the scenes was the establishment of uh, relationships between business people, uh, governments and others trying to get smart on what China was all about, building some of the financial and logistics and and, and banking infrastructure needed to have a, a more, uh, what I would call, intimate presence. Um, and then with the 2008 global financial crisis, um, you had the confluence of, of different events, which I think led to the, the next stage, which was a, China's physical presence on the ground and in, in the region. And so you went from about a billion dollars a year of, of Chinese um, investment in Latin America to about $10 billion per year, starting in about 2010. Uh, in some sectors, it was just a, a lot of big merger and acquisition activity, especially in petroleum and in, in mining. Um, in other sectors, it had been building up little by little. Um, sectors like telecommunications with, with Huawei, or uh, for example, in the electricity uh, sector with companies like, like State Grid, uh, buying uh, transmission and generation uh, ca capability. Um, but so um, with that uh, new footprint on the ground, there was a lot of conflict uh, in terms of social conflict, conflict with governments, problems with projects, but also uh, immense learning opportunities. So the Chinese have gotten a lot smarter um, although that learning continues. Now, if you look at the 
the current state. So, you know, a decade after, uh, you know, that presence on the ground, you see other types of evolution. Number one, with the evolution of the global economy, um, China has focused much more on energy, especially renewable energy, uh, transmission capabilities, uh, things like an investing in, um, in hydroelectric facilities, uh, wind, photovoltaic, uh, even some, some nuclear, although that's been with problems. A lot of focus also on expanding its ability in the digital sector, not just telecommunications, but also cloud computing, uh, surveillance architectures, e-commerce, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then along with that, um, part of the banking relationship, there's also a strategic movement to try to uh, use its large transactions in bank swap arrangements to, uh, to make the renminbi an international currency and get away from the dominance of the dollar. You see that in big transactions in places like, like Brazil and in Argentina, but also Venezuela. But you see it in other parts of the world, for example, with Saudi Arabia, among others. Um, now, having said that, there's also a um, increasing political framework. So, uh, of course, uh, the thing that China first kind of marketed itself to the world starting in 2013 was the Belt and Road Initiative. In Latin America, that started in about 2018 when Panama, which historically the region had never been part of the old Silk Road, um, but when Panama was included in the BRI, that signaled that Latin America could jump on the bandwagon. And so in the next two years, you had about 20 different countries uh, get involved with that. Um, but if you think of, of a table with four legs, um, the next leg that was added beyond BRI was um, the Global Development Initiative. And so in many ways, uh, this is going back to China's South-South roots of marketing itself, not in terms of infrastructure, but by saying, hey, we as a fellow developing country want to make common cause with all of you. Um, we understand you in a way that those developed countries don't. Um, and so you see an increasing push on that. Um, and then the other two legs of the table, um, the, the third is something called the Global Security Initiative. And importantly, uh, the GSI is, is marketed very broadly. It it's not only about military sales and interactions, um, but it's also about uh, things like uh, data architectures and, and standards and artificial intelligence. Um, and also importantly, uh, China explicitly has said in, in the, their GSI white paper, they want to work with uh, institutions like SELAC, the uh, Community of Latin American Caribbean States, um, and not the established uh, security frameworks of, um, for example, the Inter-American system, like the Inter-American Defense Board or Inter-American Defense College, where the U.S., of course, has an important presence. And also, frankly, through, through BRICS, that was also mentioned. And so the GSI, in many ways, is looking to do an end run around established uh, security arrangements with the U.S. at the table, and also it it ties into the strategic role of of things like its digital architectures and increasing domination of that space. And then, of course, the, the most recent um, addition, that the fourth table leg, is the Global Civilization Initiative. Um, on its face, this seems very uh, likable because China says that you know we recognize there are different concepts of democracy, different concepts of of human rights. Um, the problem is that the way that China does this uh, indirectly suggests that because there are all these other all these concepts, it takes away from the idea that there's any one concept that is enforceable when somebody violates their own constitution or violates human rights or international law. So strategically, that is a 
not only an appeal for illiberal states, but in many ways it implicitly attacks the rules-based international order that you know essentially the U.S. and, and Europe uh, have uh, you know constructed uh, since uh, you know the Bretton Woods uh, Agreement and in the Second World War. Uh, and so it's interesting to see how you know China's pursuit of its economic interest increasingly in the kind of the digital and energy and in other uh, more sophisticated technology spaces is being built along with a, a framework that has security and political and, and other components, although China is still using a very soft touch as, as, as it does that. And so um, I'll, I'll stop there, but that, those are some of the, the most important evolutions that I've seen both in Latin America and also, uh, frankly, consistent with the way China is doing this uh, globally. Uh, thank you, Dr. Ellis. Uh, that answer really shed some light on Chinese strategy uh, on the continent that we don't think about. So uh, that was very interesting. So one of the things that come up again and again uh, is this very famous uh, Strait of Malacca dilemma that China is grappling with and the need for hydrocarbons. So interestingly, I came across uh, this article that spoke about what Iran is doing uh, in Venezuela. So they are focusing on refineries and providing technological uh, equipment. So my question uh, uh, question was, do you think there is scope for China and Iran to cooperate in, um, you know, particularly in hydrocarbons, um, in a way that might infringe on US interest in the region? Sure. So first of all, to put it in context, um, I, I would say that for me, uh, China's economic strategic objectives really start with this idea of wanting secure access to the things that it need to empower the Chinese economy, which include uh, hydrocarbons, uh, also include uh, uh, various uh, strategic minerals, uh, and also include foodstuffs for feeding the you know 1.4 uh, you know, million uh, you know, Chinese people, a uh, billion Chinese people. But in addition to that, it also uh, includes uh, secure access to markets um, and also the, the use of various different types of infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, but also electricity infrastructure, digital infrastructure, financial infrastructure, and working all of those three together. In, in that way, uh, China tends to um, work with both um, uh, liberal and illiberal states in, in different ways, um, and also uh, to try to advance its, its interests by using presence in one area to reinforce others. Now, within that context, um, absolutely, petroleum is one of the things that China does need access to, even as it moves towards more you know, electric, uh, you know, based economy, which has to do, of course, with uh, its separate efforts in places like like Bolivia and Chile um, and uh, Argentina and also Mexico to uh, to to capture a, a role not only in access to lithium, but the whole lithium supply chain, because we often forget that in these areas, China doesn't just want the stuff, it wants the reliable access, and it wants to realize as much of the value added from that as is as, as possible. Now, um, your question, and, and certainly um, the question of petroleum in Venezuela, I would point out that um, the um, you know China has had difficulty in actually getting significant oil resources out of Venezuela. Uh, even even now, as Venezuela gets away from U.S. sanctions, uh, in, China has the, the major presence along with Russia in in, in Venezuela. The uh, total amount is probably only a couple hundred uh, thousand barrels per day, which is a drop in the bucket compared to what China is doing, uh, making lots of money with Iran, with Saudi Arabia, and others. Uh, let alone also uh, its oil arrangements in in Brazil and and, and elsewhere. Um, have, having said that, um, it goes to a broader issue, however, not only, and I should also mention Russia, clearly, um, but there is a um, really a also an, an, an informal kind of collaboration 
uh, strategic collaboration with what I would call illiberal states. To me, what's important is that it is China is not seeking a formal alliance because the goals of each of those illiberal states are, are very different. Um, the goals of Iran are very different from the goals of Saudi Arabia, are very different from the goals of, of Russia. However, um, China recognizes that it uh, can profit from the, the need of each of those illiberal states and the resources that it has. And so you have the situation where it is you know, buying uh, Russian petroleum and, and foodstuff at a great discount, whereas most of the rest of the world are putting on sanctions. It is um, doing major projects in Iran, also un under sanctions regime. Uh, now it's expanding that collaboration with Saudi Arabia for, you know, the, the same, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia also frustrated by pushback against uh, some of its, its authoritarian uh, government uh, actions. Um, and of course, Venezuela. China tries not to uh, get tainted by the, the more provocative or military actions of, of those illiberal states, but rather to basically profit from them. Um, and at the same time, um, it recognizes that those um, the activities of, of those countries in many ways because they distract or weaken the rules-based order and, and the United States and, and its allies creates strategic space for the United States. And so uh, China, for example, plays a difficult balancing game with, with Russia, um, trying not to be directly seen as an arms provider in a way that could lead to military repercussions against China, um, and yet trying to, um, but yet benefiting from the way in which the United States is, and the West is spending billions and billions of dollars to defend Ukraine against Russian aggression. And China is learning a lot of things that it can apply if it ever decides to act against you know, Taiwan. So similar things with, with, with Iran. Um, and you mentioned, for example, the Iran-Venezuela relationship with the visit by uh, uh, Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi and his defense minister, I think just about two weeks ago. And, and again, um, China benefits from those things. There's also a synergy in that the Chinese money that helps regimes like Venezuela to be viable also gives them ability to um, have something to offer and sell when they want to deal with the Iranians in, for example, with Petropars and, and building up their, um, you know, repairing their refinery and, and, and things like that. So there's lots of synergies, but it's still a very cautious game. But at the end of the day, it's a long strategic play in which China's empowerment of what I would call the illiberal counter order um, is probably the, the greatest collective threat that I would say to the rules-based, you know, Western order and the concept of democracy that, you know, we used to, uh, you know, with some, um, you know, with some excessive hubris, uh, think that we had a monopoly on in the West, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, yes, uh, Dr. Ellis, that explains a lot uh, in the region. So one of the things that you spoke about was the strategic space. And, you know, uh, we, I mean, China needs that to gain, uh, gain a strate uh, strategic edge. So uh, my question was, China has uh, allegedly um, has had a secret agreement with Cuba to establish a spy base, uh, uh, quote unquote. Uh, so I wanted to um, ask about the implications of this agreement and what are the geopolitical dynamics that might be impacted uh, because of this agreement. Sure. Um, so for those of us following the Cuba relationship, um, there were rumors, but never uh, confirmed that uh, China had taken over uh, since about 1999 operation of at least uh, one electronic intelligence uh, facility uh, in Lourdes or, or Bejucal um, that used to be operated by, by the Soviet Union. Now, obviously, technology changes a lot over, you know, 30, 40 years. And so, you know, the presumption was that China brought in its own equipment as it used those facilities. Um, and there was also some rumor that maybe other facilities 
facilities in Cuba, uh, maybe, for example, a, a computing facility in Santiago de, de, de Cuba. Um, having said that, uh, when um, the issue was raised by the Wall Street Journal uh, report right before Secretary Blinken's visit to the PRC, uh, the uh, Biden administration declassified some information indicating that, yes, the U.S. had known that at least since 2019, the Chinese had operated uh, in Cuba with electronic intelligence gathering. Um, and it appeared that around 2019, they had done some sort of upgrade to the facility, uh, which makes sense. Uh, now, the um, and of course, there's uh, the second chapter, which was another not yet confirmed Wall Street Journal uh, report that the Chinese are also negotiating with, with Cuba to uh, to uh, do uh, some sort of training facility. Now, the implications, first of all, of the electronic intelligence, a number of different uh, facilities, U.S. facilities are, are in that area. Um, the headquarters for U.S. Southern Command, the headquarters and operations by U.S. Special Forces, uh, you know, SOCOM, as, as well as uh, U.S. Central Command headquarters there in Tampa. Uh, in addition, you have major U.S. Uh, military uh, air facilities, such as the one in Jacksonville. Uh, of course, uh, our, our major uh, space launch site, Kennedy Center, um, is again in, in, in that area. Um, and so there are any number of facilities that have, you know, sensitive electronic emissions, which give you ideas of what's going on, but also, um, you know, collecting electronic emissions from different, uh, you know, warships and, and, and fighters, which uh, can be used uh, essentially in the future detection and in, in going against those types of, of military assets. Um, there is also uh, some sense that if you have enough proximity, you may be able to intercept satellite uh, signals that are aimed towards those, those facilities, if you can also decrypt uh, those satellites. So there are a number of different things that would basically give China um, important advantages, um, not only um, in, in, in wartime, but also in, in the preparation for a conflict you know, with the United States. And, and clearly, um, if uh, the United States were ever trying to uh, to uh, send its uh, you know, forces to deploy or sustain uh, to the Pacific, to the Indo-Pacific, then you know, certainly the ability to have those facilities to observe there would be would be valuable. Um, beyond that, of course, uh, the idea of, of having training facilities, um, whether it's just training or not, that also increases the possibility of military collaboration, and it increases uh, options for, um, under the guise of trainers, having special teams for intel collection or, or uh, basically operations that could be used to you know, sabotage or otherwise act against uh, those nearby U.S. facilities or even partner facilities or, or do uh, other, other types of things. And so there's a range of things. Uh, one can say, well, um, you know, the U.S. does things in China, in you know, Taiwan, uh, you know, does China have a right or not? But um, it's one thing to talk about the, the morality of it, but it's another thing from the perspective of, of those of us who are charged with, um, you know, planning for the defense of of, of the U.S. and in the region, thinking about strategically what that presence means in terms of, of what China can do and in the threats that we would have to deal with in, in time of conflict. And so I think it certainly um, is on a lot of people's minds, uh, the fact that you have those capabilities. Um, and finally, it illustrates both that China is willing to take risks that it previously was not willing to take in terms of provoking or potentially provoking the United States. And it shows that Cuba, which remembers well the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, is also willing to take risks um, because it so much needs Chinese money as well as Iranian money and Russian money and, and others. It's willing to take risks to get that money to help um, you know, keep its regime economically 
solvent. So both of those uh, demonstrations of what those sides are willing to do and take risks uh, do not bode well, in, in my judgment, for where things are going with you know Chinese engagement in the hemisphere or, or Cuban behavior in the hemisphere. Um, Professor Alice, I would like to chime in here. Like uh, you, you very uh, fascinatingly put that uh, 1962 Cuba missiles uh, uh, crisis. So, like, uh, what kind of preparedness that United States should have, rather than the because Mexico is a as is a friend and neighbor to the United States. That uh, in in foreseeable future we can say that it's not as harmful. And looking at the history of the Cuba. Uh, like it's as uh, how much you see the strengthening of the communism uh, of there though the Cuba is, is already in crisis in the internal crisis after the Fidel Castro regime. Well, no, it's a great question, and for me, you know, certainly, um, you know, Cuba is is economically probably in the worst shape. Probably Cuba has not been in this bad of shape since the withdrawal of the Soviet Union and its money, and you know, with the collapse of, of the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union in in 1993. Um, you can see that in the number of refugees that are coming out of Cuba, um, and you could see previously, of course, with the seven million Venezuelans that left Venezuela, uh, the difficulties that they have there. Um, however, when authoritarian regimes are not willing to negotiate power, um, you know it. It's one thing to have economic crisis that can force mass suffering of your people and, and mass out-migration. Uh, that, that does not mean that there will be a, um, a change. So having said that, for me, the issue is not so much um, you know, about communism or not, but essentially that you have regimes that uh, their political orientation is uh, very hostile to the United States by, by definition um, and willing to collaborate with a range of extra hemispheric rivals, uh, you know, China, Russia, Iran and in others uh, in in that way serve as what I would call threat hosts that bring in the possibility of, of those even more substantial threats into the region in, in time of uh, conflict. Um, beyond that, the question of um, you know what some of the things we should be prepared for are. And again, um, oftentimes we look at it from a peacetime lens um, and you know, nobody wants war. And, and I don't think that uh, you know the actual prospects of war, even over Taiwan, are that high, um, but they're certainly not zero. And they've certainly gotten greater with the aggressiveness of, of Xi Jinping in his third period in office. I think in my uh, opinion, he very much, as, as other you know, US uh, you know, government officials have, have said, uh, very much wants to, uh, to, to resolve this issue as part of his legacy of his term in office that would put him, you know, on the standing with, with Mao Zedong um, among uh, other you know, great Chinese leaders. So, you know, expecting that one, one, those of us who are responsible for thinking about the defense of, of the U.S. have to think, well, if there were a war, whether you desire one or, or not, um, what could we expect? Um, and I think number one, China's economic might means that the U.S. cannot automatically expect access to uh, partner airspace or partner uh, facilities or military cooperation, even like we are receiving now, um, that certain actors in the name of economic benefits and Chinese pressure would be reluctant to provide that. Um, number two, uh, to anticipate that a Chinese and perhaps others helping the Chinese, especially in wartime, maybe the Cubans, maybe the Venezuelans or, or others, um, would be looking to provide uh, the collection of militarily relevant information and other information on U.S deployment on sustainment and would possibly seek to operate from both commercial as, as well as other facilities in the region to try to sabotage those and perhaps even sabotage some partners. For example, um, without naming countries, there are some partners who would likely not heed Chinese implicit threats to not 
cooperate with the United States, um, those partners would then in wartime become basically targets, whether it was Chinese cyber attacks or, or Chinese economic attacks and others. And so, you know, the U.S. has to think about, you know, also helping to protect its partners in those wartime you know, scenarios. Uh, as you get farther into a wartime scenario, you have to think also about um, that you mentioned uh, uh, the Straits of Malacca, very much of importance to China. And of course, as China has moved out, also the second, you know, major geographic uh, logistics choke point as Suez Canal, where the Chinese very closely uh, you have the, um, the the base in, in Djibouti. Um, but uh, certainly for, for China, the, the question of, of how you close down uh, U.S. usable maritime choke points in the West. Uh, so, you know, the Panama Canal, uh, for those of us who remember how easy it was to shut down the Suez Canal with a container ship, you know, going sideways and, you know, there are you know, many ways that the Panama Canal can be shut down despite its government, um, which then takes you to the secondary transit around the south of Argentina, usually through the Straits of Magellan. So in that sense, the Chinese location of a uh, supposedly private port um, in, uh, in in actually Tierra del Fuego, near Tierra del Fuego, um, even though it has nothing to do with the Argentine government, um, you know, create certain risks. Uh, and so overall, the point is, um, and it also gets into the question of dual use facilities, uh, such as, for example, the Chinese operation operated port um, in, in Chiang Kai, which is going to be operate, operational in 2024, 15 uh, berth uh, deep water port. Um, and to me, the lesson of that, it's not that it, it would be an explicit military base like Djibouti, but for example, um, I'm sure uh, those in, in Indo-Pacific remember that um, when China got control of the port of, of Han Bantot in Sri Lanka, aside from the story of how that happened, um, but when China then wanted to come in with its electronic intelligence gathering warship and saying, hey, we want to put into port because the Chinese were the port operator and the Sri Lankan government was economically dependent, they were in a difficult position to say no. And so in a wartime scenario. Um, it's not a question of just bases. It's a question of facilities with dependent governments in Chinese-operated ports that could receive and provide military support, um, especially in places that you know we in the U.S. Would, would, would call the Eastern Pacific, far enough away from the U.S. mainland to be survivable and yet close enough from which the Chinese can present some very significant military risks from the Western Hemisphere in ways that you're not used to, to seeing. And so again, um, you know, this is not to say that, uh, you know, this is what people in the U.S. expect to happen. But again, um, it's the job of responsible military actors, both in China and the United States, to plan for what a war might look like. And as one does that planning, um, the actions in the commercial space and in these other spaces um, create some very significant risks that really increase the, the threats that uh, you know that uh, we, we've had to consider previously thank you that's that's really really insightful good uh, uh, yes sir uh, if I may mm -hmm. uh, as we are discussing the Cuban invasion a lot of focus has been on the possibility of this invasion of Taiwan by uh, China of course um, so one of the things that is very interesting is this war footing of China in regards to the diplomatic front so a lot of countries have been breaking ties with Taiwan so one of the most recent ones uh, was Honduras um, so recently they have opened an embassy uh, in Beijing so my question was what do you think the impact of this uh, decision was? 
That's a great, great question. Um, so first of all, one has to understand the impact strategically in the context of, of China's broader struggle to isolate Taiwan. And then, of course, uh, the, the impact at, at, at the country level. And, and both are really significant. So in, in general, um, I think what one can see is that the China oftentimes, like uh, with its its pursuit of, of dethroning the, the dollar and introducing the renminbi, these are oftentimes um, gradual campaigns pursued over long periods of time. It's not necessarily that the China thinks quite as millennial uh, is, is people uh, you know, like to think, but uh, certainly China does have the habit of, of having uh, longstanding national objectives that it works towards, and sometimes it, it has to try something and then try something else working in that direction. And so um, one of those key things certainly is the recuperation of territory that, that China perceives as should be belonging to it. And you know, certainly Hong Kong was one of those territories. Um, and certainly uh, Taiwan is even more importantly, uh, one of those territories because of the, the legacy of, of the you know, retreat of nationalists to Formosa and the continuing you know, defiance of symbolically, you know, uh, you know PRC sovereignty. Um, having said that, thus, um, the, the idea of, you know, to me, one track is the preparation for some sort of military interaction. And it's not necessarily that it would be just an invasion, but perhaps presenting such overwhelming force that that um, you know, the Taiwanese would believe that there was no point in, in fighting. That's you know very kind of classic Sun Tzu, if, if you will. But another part of that is is the sense that your enemies are um, or your adversaries are are isolated and surrounded, and so basically eliminating. Uh, Taiwan's remaining internationally recognizing actors are, are part of, of that isolation. Um, and so again, it doesn't mean that, that China will wait until Taiwan has zero international recognizers before a military action, but just to, to recognize that as China, as Taiwan moves towards zero um, and as mo moves towards uh, the international community uh, not giving strong signals that it can and will defend it, then that um, increases Taiwan's desperation and 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 you know the, the sense that it it has to submit, but it also you know increases uh, PRC confidence that it can act boldly. And so uh, as you move towards zero, and of course the the recognition by Honduras and uh, pre previously uh, in December 2021, the um the, the move by by Nicaragua, um and uh, you know now there are others on the on the table. Uh, so you have uh, even now the the new uh, one of the leading presidential candidates in in Guatemala. Uh, uh, Revelo talking about uh, you know possible uh, you know change. Uh, you had uh, some noises by um, the Prime Minister of um, I believe it was Saint Vincent and the Grenadines. Uh, you have some possibility in, in in Haiti, and so little by little, um, you know, moving towards that um, kind of Taiwan zero uh, status. But aside from its impact on Chinese actions in Asia, uh, it also um, impacts China's influence in the countries in which those go forward. So typically there is a playbook and you can see it um, you know, going back to uh, the uh, Costa Rica's recognition in, in 2007. You could see it um, when those uh, flips were, were renewed after the end of the diplomatic truce between the PRC and, and ROC um, in 2016, when in quick succession you had uh, the recognition by the Varela government in Panama um, and then governments in the Dominican Republic in, in El Salvador, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But in each case, um, typically um, you will have a delegation that will go over. They will sign a, a lot of non-transparent MOUs. Uh, they, um, you will take uh, 
key business people over. Now, the business people will not necessarily, that will not result in a significant tr long-term trade benefit because frankly, what those regions have to sell, um, you know, uh, fruit, other perishable goods, it just doesn't make sense uh, for their small amount of undifferentiated goods to be transported halfway around the world in expensive refrigerated containers when uh, the PRC can get the same thing from the Vietnam, from the Philippines, uh, from, from from elsewhere. Um, so, but what happens is that those uh, those well connected business leaders get special deals for their export products, which basically uh, buys them into um, this. Uh, the MOUs typically open up uh, local markets uh, for things like telecommunications and infrastructure projects. There's usually a symbolic gift, sometimes a stadium, sometimes something else. But again, it, it opens up the door to construction companies. Typically, there's a Confucius Institute that creates a bridgehead for reaching out to the the uh, elites in, in that uh, area. Uh, typically, there is a training arrangement uh, because because these smaller countries uh, will have very little familiarity with with China uh, in terms of so they in the interest of of helping the country to to to, to educate their foreign affairs establishment on how to work with China uh, they will offer training programs which again gives the PRC access to the highest levels of, of government of these uh, th these countries and the list goes on and on but the bottom line is that anytime that you have one of these flips um, it is associated through the MOUs with this rapid uh, increase in uh, PRC influence in, in, in opportunities and in, in penetration. Um, and then frankly, everything that happens in one country is closely watched by other countries which are considering a flip. And so every, so to speak, move on the chessboard impacts how the game is played uh, elsewhere. And so strategically, it's not only important in Asia, but it's also important in, in what's going on uh, in terms of, of PRC influence. And, and frankly, because so many of these governments are now uh, so close to the United States that the majority, with the exception of Paraguay, are either in Central America or in the Caribbean, all very close to U.S. shore. And so this rapid expansion of PRC influence and in options is occurring in that part of Latin America, which is physically closest and strategically most delicate for, for the United States. And so that, that's another point. Uh, thank you, Dr. Ellis. That was that really illustrated Chinese actions. Uh, so one of the things that a lot of experts are talking about is uh, this, like it originates from this quote. It basically says that China invests in mines. The West should invest in mines. Um, however, as right-wing populism is rising in the US and Europe, do you think this is possible, this ex free exchange of ideas or even this free exchange of movement of people? First of all, you make a very good point that um, at, at the core of um, responding to the challenge of, of China's advance, um, it has to be a question of, of values. But it's one uh, thing to say, let's talk about values. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that one talks about values in, in an effective way, because it's a very, as you know, complex space. So part of the problem in terms of, of influence, um, most people in, in Latin America um, recognize that there are aspects of, of China that are um, problematic, whether it's its um, you know treatment of its own people, the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, the you know crushing of democracy in Hong Kong, um, you know its activities, uh, you know its military threats towards Taiwan, the militarization of the South and East China Sea, um, you know that's understood. Indeed, the uh, predatory nature of Chinese companies is often understood in Latin America. Um, part of the problem, unfortunately, is sometimes. Uh, 
cognitive dissonance, desire to say, well, um, we want to get the benefit um, and we believe that we can control the risk. And so we'll say it's it, it's just business. And so that creates a bit of a trap because it means that the people who are, are most knowledgeable to understand the risks of the Chinese system and help help their governments to coordinate against them are oftentimes um, silenced in, in selective ways in the interest of, of pursuing that benefit. Um, but a couple other points I think it's, it's important. Um, number one is understanding that there are certain, although the Chinese do not trumpet the virtues of their system, although they are increasingly um, vocal about, you know, something to be learned from China's example, but, um, you know, it is still clear, even if the Chinese are not saying it, that even if it at great costs, the, the Chinese uh, have brought something like 800 uh, million people out of poverty in 40 years. Um, and also, um, it's uh, you know new um, applications of, of information technology, even though it really uh, violates uh, some sensitive issues of, of personal privacy and and, and other uh, you know uh, rights. Uh, it uh, is perceived as bringing about a, a lot of economic efficiency, maybe a certain level of, of security and, and other things. And so, for a Latin America, um, which uh, sometimes does not see Western-style democracy as having brought some of the results that it had hoped for. Um, the Chinese example seems to suggest, well, if you're willing to give up some privacy rights and adopt this approach to technology, if you're willing to allow the state to have some role, maybe it's not all just about you know private industry. And so that example impacts the debate. And I grew up during the, the Cold War in the 1970s, you know, 1980s. Um, and you know at that time, uh, even though the Soviet Union had it's in you know, Warsaw Pact had People's Democratic Republics and talked about um, the advances of, of communism. One could just look at the the vibrancy of free market economies and and the, the difference between what the Soviet Union called democracy and, and the West called democracy. And there was a clear difference. I, I think part of the, the danger now is that um, in the new discourse with some problems of, of polarization, especially in the internet era, um, in which there are um, there are you know sincere doubts in in especially in some of the places where democracy has not brought fruits and at the same time clear examples of what would appear to be successes of china it it really complicates that that value proposition um the difficulty however is that um the chinese um in, in many ways are putting forth concepts that isn't presenting an alternative that can be evaluated, but in many ways an alternative that effectively disarms a value proposition which is in the way of, of China advancing its own. Um, so we're really not having a conversation about what the values actually are. Um, we're having, you know, so for example, the Global Civilization Initiative saying, well, um, we believe there's lots of concepts of democracy and lots of concepts for, for human rights, but effectively by saying, okay, well, we don't want to talk about human rights, or we want to talk about human rights without criticizing anybody on human rights. Um, at the end of the day, um, that takes us back to the world that philosopher Thomas Hobbes in the West used to talk about, in which, uh, you know, the the, the Leviathan, uh, he who is stronger, um, you know, basically gets his way, whether that's a military or, 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 or a state. Um, and then just to conclude on this piece, because I am also a big believer in um, this idea that we we can't be just transactional. We can't just say, let's, um, you know, okay, you know, China offers you a bridge, we'll offer you a bridge. Uh, 
the Western capitalist democratic system does not have the the agility um, or the mobilization of private sector capital to be able to to move in 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 that way. We'll never beat China at that 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 game. Um, you know, at the, at the end of the day, it has to be about um, the region saying what you want to do. It's not because the U.S. says, but because it's in your own interest. Um, and and I think we have a lot more to do there to convince the the region really through data and and examples and things that um, you know. Even what, whether you call it democracy or not, that um, things like good governance, things like good project planning, things like um, you know competent evaluation of you know competing you know bids, uh, enforcement of, of laws equally with, with all players, not allowing you know Chinese or others to, to cut corners, uh, things like insisting on transparency so that what you actually get is in the interest of the country's development and, and not just you know. For me, the, the win-win is often the, the Chinese elites win um, and the local elites who sign the deal and get the special deal for their brother-in-law's sister's family win. But the people, like always, end up you know not winning. And so really kind of to make that argument more effectively that you know, it's not just about whether you turn away the Chinese money that you need for your development. It's about, are you doing these things with transparency and good planning so that your country will actually benefit from, from these things? And so to me, those are the type of, of value discussions that we need to have. Um, and finally, part of the challenge is also that the availability of, of Chinese money um, makes that conversation very, very delicate because um, as we're seeing right now um, when you know the United States says okay you're not a democracy you're not doing this with human rights um illiberal actors say okay well we'll just turn to the Chinese for the money we don't need to, to listen to this and so while I'm a big believer that the Western world has to lead with values uh basically value shaming does not work in a world in which uh, you have another actor with a lot of money and, and who imposes a few value conditions. And so I think we have to conduct that value discourse much more intelligently, much more flexibly in a way that emphasizes the long-term interests of our partners, rather than just try to sell the values as, as things that are just so inherent and obvious that while of course the world will want them because I think the world has not yet had a positive experience with that. And, and so we need to do a better job in selling why some of these things are in, in the interest of, of those who are adopting the values. Uh, thank you, Dr. Ellis. That was an amazingly comprehensive answer. And I really appreciate it. So uh, you mentioned alternatives. So once upon a time uh, or so I have heard that the IMF and the World Bank they used to strike fear in the hearts of officials and politicians. But now China provides an alternative and countries are uh, really trying to negotiate the loans with the IMF, but still some countries do go to China. Uh, so how have these loans created leverage for China? And more importantly, how are they going to impact the long-term policies of these data countries? And uh, just a short note, like, Another question, basically, do you think U.S. and its allies, can they counter these uh, various economic permutations? Great question. So first of all, important to recognize that the Chinese um, are in all of those financial spaces. And so, um, you know, they actually are in places like, for example, the Inter-American Development Bank, uh, where they've been on the board since, I believe, February 2009. Um, and uh, actually, the IADB with, with China has set up a number of, of co-financing funds. And oftentimes, Chinese companies will position themselves to capture, you know, IADB, you know, loans. And so it's, it's not just the big Chinese policy banks like China Development Bank. Um, and, and also, um, it's important to recognize that um, some of that policy bank approach itself is, is shifting. And so, uh, especially when you had, um, you know, 
big uh, populist countries like, like Venezuela who are willing to take massive amounts of policy bank loans. And there wasn't a recognition of the level of risk involved in, in the repayment. Basically the same lesson that, you know, uh, Western development banks learned, uh, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, you know, before. And so what's happened in, in that context is that, um, you know, the level of lending of China Development Bank, China Exim Bank has trailed off a little bit, at least with, with the loss of, of key uh, recipients like, like Venezuela. Um, although with the return of Lula da Silva in Brazil and others that could be coming back. Um, but there also is a, is a shift to more commercial lending, basically public-private partnership loans in, in which uh, uh, essentially uh, you know big Chinese industrial conglomerates like, like China Harbor or, or others are essentially self-financing major projects, uh, but not necessarily kind of government to government in, in the traditional you know fashion and so understanding you know how it, that's evolving as well um the question of you know what the us can do and, and clearly um a lot of the U.S. tools uh, need to uh, be rethought. And so, you know, the, the issue of, for example, the Inter-American Development Bank, um, which is supposed to be a counter to China with, with, you know, good, you know, economically, you know, corporate social responsibility, you know, you know, high, you know, high level, you know, loans. Um, and yet, so number one, how do you ensure that the very institutions which are supposed to be alternatives to, to China do not end up becoming co-opted by China themselves? Uh, number two, others, for example, the development Finance Corporation, which was basically uh, conceived uh, in the previous administration to be a a more a large scale, more more agile, um, you know, build on to um, the uh, U.S. Overseas uh, Private Investment Corporation (OPIC) and, and USXM. Um, but unfortunately, um, anytime that you have something that's important and good, um, all of the the desirable political conditions start getting piled onto it. And so, you know, now, um, you know, uh, DFC uh, tries to, to say, okay, we we all are going to only target lesser income countries. We are going to try, especially try to target um, in, uh, environmentally uh, responsible you know, projects, especially those uh, in, in the green energy sector. Um, if possible, we are going to try to pro target projects that that uh, you know, that benefit um, historically uh, disadvantaged groups and minorities. And all of these things are good. Um, but the dilemma is that um, you know, China is out to economically win, um, whereas you know the U.S. is trying to do 60 different things to, to do good. And that is, is under cut the scale and the agility with which uh, DFC, for example, can present alternatives. Um, another one of the pieces, frankly, also is that the um, you know, U.S., uh, you know, with the polarization, Washington with split control of Congress. Uh, you know, things like, for example, uh, legislation for a Build Back Better World, which was supposed to bring a lot of new money to the table, which that could then be used to compete. Um, with that having difficulty getting through in Washington, then um, again, the, the ability to compete without putting money on the table, um, you know, whatever the institution is, is, is yet another problem. Um, although, again, I've seen a lot of thinking being done about that. Uh, you know, even USAID, for example, has a part of its organization where it doesn't just think about how to, um, you know, improve people's lives, but but along the way, you know, how we can push back against some of the more predatory aspects of, of, of China. So there is lots of creative thinking, I think, happening, um, you know, but um, I, I would say it, it clearly is a complex and an evolving picture. And then finally, it is important to note that uh, although it's easy to make China the the, the ten foot giant, um, clearly there is enormous debt overhang both at the national level, at the corporate level, and in terms of, of, of Chinese localities. Uh, the Chinese economy right now is not coming back quite as quickly uh, after the end of, of zero COVID. Um, and and frankly, a lot of those bad loans, uh, maybe as much as thirty percent of the one trillion dollars in um, Belt and Road 
road initiative loans, especially in Central Asia and Central and Eastern Europe, um, have you know, not gone through. And so a lot of that experience with, with bad loans, I, I would say, has caused Chinese banks to be a little bit more cautious than they used to, especially in the current economic environment. Um, so although I think we still continue to have a very serious problem that we need to get our own institutions better funded and unbroken for, um, I, I think the the China's move forward will, at least in the financial domain, be somewhat restricted by some of these internal problems and, and issues of, of their own past. Uh, thank you, Dr. Ellis, for sharing your knowledge and time with us today. I will now hand over to Dr. Saxena for closing remarks. Thank you, Arushi. And uh, thank you, Professor Ellis. It's uh, really uh, wonderful. And uh, in real in, in real meaning, it's a it's is in the framework of the cost and benefit analysis, and uh, uh, thank you so much for your time and your participation. And uh, uh, please note down the audience here that the views expressed and presented um, are personal uh, should not be constituted to any organization and institutions. Thanks again, and uh, we look forward to many more talks and discussions in the future with you, Professor Alice. Thank you. It's a pleasure being on the program and an honor. Bye-bye. Thank you.